Luke chapter 16. In March 1980, doesn't seem like that long ago, by the way, one share, Class A, Berkshire Hathaway stock, sold for $480. As of this Thursday at 9.45 a.m. when I checked, one Class A share of Berkshire Hathaway stock sold for, you ready? $494,028, making it the most expensive stock in the world. If you're wondering, that's a 103,000% increase. To put it in perspective, if in 1980 you had purchased 10 shares of Berkshire Hathaway stock, it would have cost you $4,800. Today that stock would be worth $4,940,280. Now don't you wish you had a DeLorean with a flux capacitor in it? We could, we could fix a lot of things. Now, most people, if you live long enough, will have those moments in their lives of missed opportunities, all the shoulda, coulda, wouldas of our lives. The I should have bought Amazon stock when it was only $15 a share, or I could have bought land in Idaho 15 years ago for nothing, or I would have kept all those baseball cards if I'd known they were going to be worth so much and I would never put them in the spokes of my bicycle. (laughs) A whole generation has no idea what I'm talking about. Not all financial in our lucrative investments are the best investments. The day is coming when all of us will stand before the Lord and we will at that moment recognize the difference between good investments and bad investments. The difference between eternal investments and temporal investments. The Bible has much to say about money, about wealth, about poverty. The Bible speaks about acquiring money, saving money, loaning money, investing money, inheriting money, giving money. Now, some of you right now are getting nervous. Pastor's talking about money. You're holding on to your wallets. You're clutching your purses. You can relax. I am not going to talk about money. I'm going to let Jesus talk about money. (laughs) And he was not shy when it came to the subject of money. In fact, one-third of the parables of Jesus deal with money in some way. You cannot read the Bible very long before you come to some passage that deals with money or finances. You cannot live a sanctified Christian life until you have come to terms with your personal relationship to money. We're going to look at the parable that Jesus gives here in Luke chapter 16, and we'll look at the parable, then we'll see the explanation and the application and the principles involved in it. So we're going to start with the parable. I'm going to read the first seven and a half verses as you follow along. Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 1, then we'll go back and unpack it. Now he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting for your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking away my management from me, and I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg, I know what I shall do. So, when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of the master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? 
And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write eighty. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. Now Jesus, when he's giving this parable, speaking to the disciples, he'd just been finished speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes as in chapter 15 where he gave three parables in a row, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. He turns from giving those parables that were all about why Jesus associates with tax collectors and sinners, and he moves and he gives his attention to the disciples and he's going to talk about money. The Pharisees and the scribes are still listening. We know that because they react to what Jesus says in verse 14. And then Jesus turns back and gives his attention back to the scribes and the Pharisees and gives another parable about a very different type of rich man that will address them specifically. Among the religious leaders of Israel, money was considered to be a measure of one's piety. In other words, if the wealthier they were, the the more they were considered to be pious or religious. If somebody was rich, they were considered to be super spiritual. If they were poor, they were considered to be a sinner, unspiritual, not pious. Wealth was considered by most of the religious leaders of Israel as God's stamp of approval. If you are rich, congratulations, God is saying to you, well done, good and faithful servant. The thinking was something along the lines of, God has rewarded my religious efforts with financial blessings. So the greater the wealth, the the more God must be pleased. So the richer you, you were, the more you pleased God with your life. Now, there was a double standard. The double standard was the religious leaders did not think that the wealthy tax collectors were being blessed by God because they knew that the tax collectors were crooked and they got rich by collecting taxes for the Roman government off of the people. Now, interestingly enough, the the Sadducees who ran the temple had no problem acquiring wealth by taking taxes from the people of Israel. And the scribes and the Pharisees had no problem in stealing the homes of widows and getting rich that way. Similar things happen in our day when prosperity preachers tell the people who are listening to them that God wants you to be rich. God wants you to have everything you want. And if you, if you want to be rich, if you want to be healthy and wealthy, then you just have to show God you're serious by sending me some of your money. And these people are becoming extremely wealthy out of the pockets of the people who can least afford to give it. The parable that Jesus gives here does not commend wealth and it doesn't condone poverty. Neither wealth nor poverty are considered spiritual virtues. God never says that the the wealthy are righteous or the wealthy are unrighteous, nor are the poor righteous nor unrighteous. It's a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of economics. The parable speaks of the need for Christians to live with eternity in mind. That we need to invest in that which has eternal benefit rather than investing in the temporal benefits of this world. The parable has historically been the most confusing of all the parables of Jesus. 
When I studied these a few years ago for my dissertation, I read literally dozens of interpretations of this parable, and all but one of them were wrong. There are currently, or as at last count, over 35 different published interpretations of this parable. 34 of them are incorrect. Even in studying that this week, I probably read four or five different commentaries and had six different views. So, People are very confused. The two challenges in interpreting the parable. The first is, why does the master praise the unrighteous manager? Why does the master praise the unrighteous manager? He's been dishonest. He's cheated his master out of money, yet the master seems to praise him at the end. The second thing that confuses people is why does Jesus use this ungodly man as an example to Christians? As a, an example to somehow emulate this man in one way or another. So interpreters have tried many ways to try to get, a, get through the difficulties. Some had said, well, Jesus is just using irony. He's specifically using contradictory terms to make a point. Kind of like walking into somebody's house that's a disaster area and saying, I love what you've done with the place. They say Jesus is doing that kind of a thing. Others have twisted the entire story to say that the unrighteous servant is actually the hero in the story. He's acting compassionately and nobly. He's fulfilling the Mosaic law while the master is the villain in the story because the master's been charging people uh, too much money or been charging interest what he which he wasn't allowed to do under Jewish law and he's been doing something terrible but the manager is writing a terrible injustice the problem with that is Jesus starts by saying the man squandered his boss's money and then ends by calling him an unrighteous steward an unrighteous manager others have made it much more simple They have said that verse 9 specifically, where Jesus kind of condones or says to us to emulate the manager, they just said, well, that verse was added by later translators and shouldn't be there, so just ignore it when you get to it. Problem with that is this doctrine of inspiration kind of gets in the way of such a, a line. But it is possible to understand the parable without playing games with the text, without reading into the white spaces, things that aren't there, and without denying the divine inspiration of Scripture. What we're going to see in the end is this is a how much more type parable. Jesus is going to give the parable and then the application is how much more are we supposed to do? So let's unpack it here. Verse 1, and he was saying to the disciples, so we know who his audience is, there was a rich man who had a manager... And this manager was reported to him as squandering his possession. The rich man is a hired servant. He's not a slave. He's hired this man because he's about to fire him. If he was a slave, we'd expect him to be beaten. We'd expect him to be thrown into debtor's prison or something like that. But he's a hired hand. Not only does he work for the boss, the manager, or the master, he lives under his property too because he's about to lose his, not only his job, but his room and board as well. But he's conducted a business in the master's name. He's able to buy in the master's name, sell in his master's name. He's able to negotiate business and just sign his master's name. He also keeps track of all the credits and debits owed to his master. 
It's likely that his master really had no idea what his finances really looked like because he just trusted the servant, the steward, to handle it, much like the position that Joseph had when he worked for Pharaoh, when he was bought by Pharaoh. Joseph was became in charge of Pharaoh's whole household, so Pharaoh didn't even know where his next meal was coming from. He just trusted Joseph to provide. Genesis 39.4 says, So Joseph found favor in, the, in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer of his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. The big difference between Joseph and the man in the parable is Joseph was a slave and had no choice. In the parable, the man is a hired hand and is about to be fired. So the manager squandered somehow his boss's money. We're not told how he did it. Maybe it was just poor investments. Maybe he was investing in get-rich-quick schemes. Perhaps it's just a f- a foolish investments like investing in Yugo or buying property in the Sahara Desert. Things that were just not going to make any money. Maybe it was just wasteful living. Maybe it was gambling the money or, or wasting it in wicked lifestyle like that of the prodigal son. Whatever the servant was doing, the, the master, the rich man, finds out. Somehow it gets back to him that his manager is squandering his money. Verse 2. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The boss confronts him with the information he has. The wicked servant, the wicked manager is about to get fired. But before he vacates his office, he's to bring all the books to the master and go through so the master can have a great accounting and understand exactly What's been done? What's been lost? The manager knows he's been caught. It's not looking good. He doesn't have a good excuse. He's got no grounds to plead for mercy. He's guilty as charged. Verse 3. The manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking away the management away from or taking the management away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. He realizes that his whole life is come, about to come to a crashing halt. He's going to have no job. He's going to have nowhere to live. He's not going to have food. He doesn't know what he's going to do. I, I, I can't be a manager. I'm a terrible manager. Nobody's going to hire me to do that again. And I don't want to dig ditches. And I don't want to stand on the corner with a cardboard sign. So I've got to do something. I've got to do something fast. And he hatches an ingenious plan. That's going to secure an immediate future for himself. Verse 4. I know what I shall do. So when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. I'm going to do something right now that is so smart that as soon as I lose my job here, somebody else is going to say, you come live with me. He's going to make others feel indebted to him. He's going to make them willing to take him into their homes. Verses 5 and 6. And he summoned each of his master's debtors. And he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly and write fifty. So he summons all the people who owe his boss money. Bring your IOUs with you. Sits down the first, How much do you owe? A hundred measures of oil. A hundred baths of oil. Literally eight to nine hundred gallons of olive oil. That's what he owes. It would take approximately 150 olive trees, 
a year to produce eight to 900 gallons of olive oil. The total value of the olive oil is about a hundred, or I'm sorry, about a thousand denarii, or a little less than three years wages. The manager says, cut the bill in half. Save a year and a half of payments. This would be like you going to buy a new car. And you get into the office with the, with the finance manager, and you know who that, that's the guy who wants to sell you the extended warranty at the end. And he's disgruntled because he's about to lose his job, and he says, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna take 50% off the price of this car. And you say, where do I sign? That's what the manager's doing. He does a similar thing with the next debtor, verse 7. And then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. A hundred measures of wheat are a hundred cores of wheat. It's approximately 1,100 bushels of wheat, enough to feed 150 people for a year. It would take about a hundred acres of wheat to grow that amount in one year. The overall value of 1,100 bushels of wheat at that point in time is seven and a half years labor. Gives him a 20% discount off of it. Presumably, the manager does the same with other debtors in hopes of securing a future for himself. What he's doing is he's trying to make friends with these people using his master's money. It's not his money. He's playing with his master's money. He's been doing it all along. That's what got him in trouble in the first place. And now he's using the debts owed to his master to secure a future for himself. He has no loyalty to his former boss. He's not interested in his boss's reputation or his boss's financial situation. He's looking out for himself. What can I do to protect myself at this moment in time? He's a crook. He's already proven to be dishonest. Now he only increases the dishonesty and he also involves other people in his dishonesty. He's already squandered the boss's money. Now he's costing the boss even more. Now he's not noble. It's not that his boss is stealing money from other people and he's Robin Hood taking from the rich and giving to the poor. He's trying to use his boss's money to secure his own future. He's not so, this isn't some sort of class warfare where the poor man is taking from the, the rich man and making things even and redistributing wealth. He's not like the guy who's disgruntled because he's getting fired so he infects the company's computer system with a virus. Or the guy who's getting fired from the, uh, from the business, he says, well, I'm going to get even, and he grabs a cardboard box and he throws staples and pads of paper and a box of ink pens in it, says, there, that'll teach him. This guy wants others to feel indebted to him. He's trying to find a place to live and food to eat so when he gets kicked out of his place he's living and fired from his job, he'll still be okay. The first part of verse 8 finishes the parable. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. This is a shocking twist in the parable. It's totally unsuspected. If you're the audience listening to it for the first time, you're going, wait, time out. Did I hear what I think I heard? The, the master praised the unrighteous steward? We would expect it to be the other way around. Or we would expect the, ma- the master to punish him. We would expect the master to have the unrighteous manager thrown in jail. We would expect if, if it were a slave that he would beat him. 
He wants, we want, as the reader even, the, the unrighteous manager to get his comeuppance. We want, we don't want him to be patted on the back. We don't want him to get away with this. We want him to be punished. That's not the way things should be done in our mind. The wicked are to be punished. The righteous are to be rewarded. The wicked are to be used as bad examples and the righteous are to be used as good examples. But this is for this reason why so many people struggle with this parable. It doesn't make sense to them. Why would the wicked be congratulated? So they try to figure out a way to make him righteous instead of wicked. The problem is Jesus said he's an unrighteous manager in verse 8. To understand the parable, the point that Jesus is making, we have to ask ourselves, why would the owner, why would the master praise the manager? Well, he's not praising him for his dishonesty. He's not saying, man, you are one dishonest guy. That's so cool. That's not what he's doing. He's not praising him because he stole. He's not praising him for defrauding. He's praising him because he's shrewd. He's praising him because what he did was ingenious. The manager had used his position to make sure he was provided for in the future. It was an ingenious plan. The manager was getting a pink slip and he turned it into a promotion. He was getting fired, for those of you who don't know what pink slips are. He was getting fired and he used it as an opportunity to advance his own well-being. It's like the master saying to the manager, i got to hand it to you, that was a pretty smart move. Well played. You might think of two chess masters going head to head, and eventually one of them wins, and the, the loser doesn't like losing, but he has to admire the play of the other man, and he says, good job, well played. Well played. This is what Jesus has in mind when he states the explanation in the second half of verse 8. He says, for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. So he's comparing two different groups, the sons of this age, which are the unbelievers, and the sons of light, which are the believers. Ephesians 5.8 says, you were formerly in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, walk as children of light. Those who are in the light are the believers, those who are still in the dark, those are the children of the age, those are the unbelievers. So Jesus states a fact. And the fact is this, non-Christians are more adept at using the world's money, the world's resources for their temporal benefit than Christians are at using it for an eternal benefit. Jesus is not commending the actions of the wicked manager. He's just stating a fact and contrasting that with the actions of Christians. The sinful man is better at using the world's money to make friends for the immediate temporal benefit than Christians are for making friends for eternal benefit. And we don't really dispute that, do we? Because we know plenty of non-believers who are more diligent and more intent and more focused at storing up treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break in and steal, then we know Christians that are intent on storing up treasures in heaven 
where that, those things don't happen. In fact, we would recognize, if we're honest, that we know more Christians who are more diligent about storing up treasures on this earth, wealth that will ultimately be, come somebody else's or be destroyed, than we know Christians that are intent on storing up treasures in heaven. When it comes to worldly wealth, death is the ultimate thief. You can be buried with all the worldly wealth that you've acquired, but it won't do you any good because you can't take it with you. The pharaohs tried that, and the only people who got rich were grave robbers and archaeologists. So Jesus there gives the application in verse 9. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. So Jesus clarifies the point of his parable when he says, I say to you, this is the application to his listeners, make friends for yourselves by the means of wealth of unrighteousness. He's not talking about gaining wealth in an unrighteous manner, stealing it, embezzling it, whatever. He's talking about the money that's corruptible. The world's money is corruptible. It's unrighteous. It's man-centered. We know that by whose pictures are on it. Jesus would say the same thing. When asked if he should pay taxes, he said, show me a coin. They showed him a coin. He said, whose picture's on it? They said, Caesar's. He says, and then give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but give to God the things that are God's. So this money that you're showing me belongs to Caesar. It's his money. Give it to him. The full-on explanation of that is you're created in the image of God. You've got to give God yourself. But the money of this world is, it's not divine. It's not, it doesn't come from heaven. It's not to say that we don't need money. Rather, we need to use it wisely. We are to use the world's money for eternal purposes. Just as the unsaved can use money to buy friends on this earth, we can use money to invest in making friends for eternity. We can use the money this world provides to spread the gospel around the world, to make sure more and more people hear the gospel. We can invest in the church and its outreach. We can invest in global missions. We can invest in Bible translations. We can invest in the training of pastors and Bible teachers and seminaries around the world and People can be coming to saving faith by a result of our investment. Jesus acknowledges that it takes earthly money to spread the gospel, and he wants us to be more heavenly minded than we are earthly minded. The wicked manager used his boss's wealth to secure a temporal home for himself. We are to use the wealth obtained to purchase eternal homes for others, if you will, by giving them the gospel. No secret that the ministry takes money. We use it to pay salaries. We use it to pay for a place to meet. We support missionaries. We have bills that have to be paid, so it does take money to run the ministry. But we are to invest our money with eternity in mind. So when it fails, he says, and it will fail, at the end of the age when the Lord returns, all the money you have in the bank won't be worth anything to you. When he returns, no matter how much money you have, your portfolio will be meaningless. 
That doesn't mean, by the way, that you're not supposed to save money or plan or invest wisely. All those things are biblical. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 20 says, There is precious treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but the foolish man swallows it up. In other words, the wise man sets some money aside and he's saving. And the fool says, I'm just going to use everything I have right now and I won't have anything for the future. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 24 and 25 Solomon tells us to consider the ant because he stores up food for the future. We're we're to plan for the future. So that's wise. It's biblical. But storing up for yourselves must not be your primary concern. We're not to be motivated by the temporal. We're to be motivated by the eternal. In other words, we're to love souls more than we love money and possessions. So you can plan to your financial planning to have the house you want, the place you want, to drive the car you want, have the boat you want, and take the vacations you want, and all of those things. And if you're not thinking about eternity, Jesus is saying your priorities are all mixed up. You're using all the wealth that you've gained just for temporal things. And you should be investing that in what will be eternal. So those who receive you in heaven, those who receive you into eternal dwellings, You invest in the spread of the gospel and when you get to heaven one day, there's going to be a group of people there to welcome you because your investment helped them come to saving faith. We're to shrewdly use the wealth to make sure that there are more people in heaven. Imagine what it'll be like when you get to heaven. Listen, if you give to missions in this church, listen to this. When we get to heaven, there are going to be people from... Italy and Greece and Fiji and Honduras and Brazil and Congo and Malawi and Uganda and Germany and Croatia and Lebanon and the Philippines and India and Albania and Cuba and other places in the world that are there because you invested in missions. And it has an eternal benefit. This is what Jesus is talking about. You can live your life and you can gather all of your resources and you can compile them and get all of the goodies that you're able to purchase on this earth, but all of them only have temporal value. In the end, it's a much better investment to invest in that which is eternal. This is a how much more type of parable. In contrast to the wicked manager's use of money for personal benefit, Jesus is saying, use the money for the eternal benefit of souls. Invest in eternity. If the wicked manager could use money to secure a home for himself, how much more should we use our money to secure heaven for others? By making sure they hear the gospel. By making sure they have the Bible in their language. By making sure that there are pastors being trained in those areas to give the gospel. Since most Christians don't use their money with eternity in mind, to drive home his point that we must invest in the eternal, Jesus gives three principles. Three principles. The first is faithfulness. Faithfulness. It's in verse 10. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. So the question is, what are you faithful with? It's not how much you have 
but who you are that determines your faithfulness. I can't tell you how many times somebody's told me, Pastor, if, if I had more, I would give. Jesus says, no, you won't. Because if you're not faithful in a little, you're not going to be faithful in a lot. In fact, he doesn't say, he doesn't compare being faithful with a little and being faithful with a lot. Look at what he does compare. He who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And he who is unrighteous in very little is unrighteous in much. He's not saying faithful and unfaithful. He says faithful and unrighteous. And all of us fall into one category or the other. We are either faithful with what God gives or we are unrighteous with what God gives. Jesus said, if you don't give when you only have a little, you're not going to give when you have a lot. As parents, you want to teach your children to give while they're getting an allowance or or babysitting or whatever they're, however they're earning money nowadays for kids is developing websites or TikToking or whatever they're doing to earn money. You want to teach them to give. Well, it's easier. And I know people, hey, I, I got, I, I, you know, I got $10. I got $100. God wants me to give 10 of it? We're just using the 10% just for sake of illustration here. I got a thousand. God wants me to give a hundred. That's a lot of money. I, I can't do that. Yes, wait till you got a hundred thousand dollars. And God wants ten thousand of it. You know, and that's a lot harder to give. It's a lot harder. Because here, this is the truth. Most people live to the extent of their means. So you think, oh boy, if I just had more than the thousand dollars, I would be able to give. If I had $10,000, it'd be a lot easier to give. As soon as you got $10,000, you just start raising your standard of living. And you're just as broke as you've always been. It's not a matter of resources. It's a matter of character. By the way, just so we're all clear here, when it comes to New Testament giving, it is to be done joyfully. It's not to be done grudgingly. It's to be done willfully. It's not to be done out of guilt or manipulation. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must do just as he purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. If you can't give with a joyful heart, then ask God to give you a joyful heart. That's how we're to give. We're to be joyful in our giving. It's much easier, by the way, to give that way. When God puts a number on your heart, or a percentage, or however He does that with you. It's much easier when you can do it with joy. The second principle is trustworthy. Trustworthy. What are you doing with what you've already been trusted with? Look at verses 11 and 12. Therefore, if you have not been faithful with the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? If you're not using the world's money in a faithful way, in other words, why would you expect to get spiritual wealth? Poor investment of your earthly wealth has eternal effects. Everything you have has been given to you by God, whether you acknowledge it or not. He's entrusted it with you and expects you to use it in a faithful way. And if you're not, He's not going to give you spiritual blessings. Everything that you and I have has been given to us by God. He is the master. We are the managers. 
And we're not to squander what he gave us. We are to use it according to his glory and his will. We're to use it wisely, invest it wisely. If you don't use it faithfully, you're going to miss out on eternal rewards. The third principle really drives the point home. That we are to invest with eternity in mind. We must understand the eternal value over temporal value. So he speaks about loyalty. Who are you loyal to? Verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You must choose whom you're going to serve. You can't, you can't choose both. This isn't like choosing between chicken and beef. This is like choosing bride number one or bride number two. You can't choose them both. Unless you live in Utah. You can't choose them both. You have to choose one or the other. It's choosing to serve God or it's choosing to serve the idol of wealth. You can't serve them both. You can't be a lover of money and devoted to God. One of them is going to win your ultimate loyalty. So that's why Jesus says this. Here brings it down to the, the, the root level. Where's your devotion? Who are you going to serve? Remember Ananias and Sapphira. Who intended to give God all the proceeds from the sale of land until they got the money in their hand. And then they started saying, Man, that's an awful lot of money. Maybe we shouldn't give it all to God. Maybe only part of it. And you remember in Acts chapter 5 how both Ananias and Sapphira died because they lied to God. They lied to the Holy Spirit. We can learn valuable lessons from the world. Like those who invest to build themselves dwellings that are temporary, we can invest in building those that are eternal. The worldly use money to make friends that can help them. We are to use money to make eternal friends. The Pharisees were listening, as I mentioned, verse 14, which really goes with the next section. Verse 14 says, Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. When Jesus told this parable, and then told his people, you need to live with eternity in mind, you need to invest in that which is eternal, the Pharisees were going... You don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. You want me to give my wealth that I believe is a sign of God's blessing away? Why in the world would I do that? Why would I take my money that I have plans for and give it away? Well, folks, that's a decision you have to make too. So what will you do with the teachings of Jesus? Will you scoff? God wants me to joyfully give. Or will you listen to what Jesus says? Particularly when he says you can't serve God in money. You're going to have to choose. You have to choose where your loyalty lies. You're going to have to choose where your investments go. Are you investing in eternity? 
Or are you trying to get the best life you can now? You can't serve God and money. You have to choose. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful that you love us. So thankful, Father, that you gave everything for us. And Father, you held nothing back. You gave your only Son so that we can know salvation, grace, mercy, forgiveness. And Father, you've called us to a life of faithfulness, a life that may require sacrifice. But Father, may we live our lives with eternity in mind. Everything we have is a blessing from you. Father, may we have wisdom to use it for your glory and your honor. Wisely investing in that which is eternal. Father, to use our resources to see others coming to saving faith is such a blessing. Father, may we be those servants of yours that are faithful. Those servants of yours that are conscientious about how we're impacting the kingdom. And Father, may you be glorified. Thank you, Father, for those here who are already generous, who are already faithful in in giving to the kingdom, in in investing in missions, in investing in the church. Thank you, Father, for their faithfulness. Thank you for their desire to use their worldly wealth for your glory and for the good of others. Father, bless them. Bless them in their faithfulness. Bless them in their sacrifice. And Father, I pray that you would glorify yourself in this church. Thank you, Father, for the way that we've been able to grow our missions year after year and in more and more countries. And Father, we pray that we would continue to be able to grow that program and be able to invest more and more and more as you see fit to provide the means. Lord, let us as a church be faithful with what you provided, using it wisely for eternal investments. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand?